Hi, I'm Adam Murray. Subtle Disruptors is about pondering two questions. What does it mean to live well in this moment, given the context within which we find ourselves? And how can we shape the world we live in so that it becomes closer to the one we want to inhabit? I do this by talking with people who you probably haven't heard of, but who I think are embodying a fascinating response to these two questions and doing it in a way that involves subtle changes all of us can make. I want you and I to get as much as possible out of these stories and to feel encouraged, connected and resolute in our own quests of subtle disruption. This week I'm talking with Corey Wassell. Here is a little bit from Corey. You can't find great advice on a spreadsheet. You know, we don't have to go through that process with clients. We could just ask them how much money they've got to invest, what they earn, what's in their super, what date they want to retire and how much income they might need. But I think we'd be missing opportunities to help them get as much out of life as possible if we took that approach. Corey and I had a great chat outside of Melbourne sunshine. But before I tell you about it, here is a quick word from our sponsor for this week. A brand new product to market, Royment Company produced the highest quality fresh mints you can find, and through a connection to local artists, have created an entirely different mint experience. Available only in select coffee shops, partnered locations, and online. You can learn more at roymentco.com and share their journey by following Royment Co. on Instagram. As I'm leaving my conversation with Corey, he hands me a book. Simon Sinek's Start With Why. Starting With Why is something that Corey and his co-founder did when launching their financial planning business. And is one of the first things they ask as they engage their clients to talk about their finances. And while starting with why would seem to be a good start, it is the answer to this question that gets me excited about the way Corey does business and helps his clients discover answers they don't even know were there. Thanks for joining me, and I hope you enjoy listening to Corey Wassell on the subtle disruption of why we plan financially. Well, Corey, do you want to start by talking about where we are and why we're here? Yeah, sure, Adam. Thanks for inviting me, mate. Uh, We are sitting between the Exhibition Centre and Melbourne's beautiful Yarra River, and we are looking back to the World Trade Centre, but as we like to refer to it, Verse HQ, that's our home. (laughs) Beautiful, isn't it? It is beautiful. It's a magnificent day. This, you were saying we went up to your office earlier and we're looking out along the Yarra there towards South Bank and the east of Melbourne and it is one of the best views of Melbourne down the Yarra River there. And this is pretty good too, like looking, we've got parkland here, it's nice and quiet, we're still very close to the city. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've got it pretty good, mate. That view at our office is spectacular. I can't help but feel like I probably take it for granted a little bit. Yeah. Because when people walk in that haven't been there before, the first thing they say is, Wow, that view is unbelievable. And you have to just remind yourself, like, yeah, it is. It is yeah. pretty incredible, isn't it? So, no, mate, we're, uh, we're pretty fortunate. We're in a, uh, in a good city, in a good spot, and the weather's beautiful. So there's not much to complain about, Adam. <laughs> That's nice. Do you come down here much? Is this like a place where you come walking or not really so much? I do a bit. I try and get out of the office a few times every day. Um, just go for some short walks, whether it's lunch or just having some morning tea or getting a bit of sun. I do do... Been known to do a few laps over the river and down past Crown and back. Sometimes just, it can be real intensity to being in a startup and the business that we're in. And for me, just getting out of the office and going for a walk and getting a bit of sun and you know, listening to a podcast potentially, mate. Yeah. Uh, as I walk, for me, that can just kind of bring me back to a place of a little more, I guess, being a little more present and uh, get me back in the, in the right frame of mind. Yeah. Mm. So how long's the business been going? How long's it been going? 
Mate, we're coming up to our second anniversary, pardon the fun. My business partner and I, James O'Reilly, we started in January last year, January 2015. So we're almost two years in, mate. So it's been a big couple of years. Yeah. Mm. And what do you do? What does VST do? What do we do? Well, we give financial advice, but you know, that's a pretty simple explanation. The reason we started the business was, I mean, to jump back a little if I can. Yeah. I got into financial advice about five, six years ago, and I went in with some really clear intentions about what I thought advice might look like and what I'd be doing and what my role would be with clients. And that was one where I thought that I'd be sitting down with clients and having some great conversations about, you know, where are you guys at individually, collectively, personally, financially? What are you working towards? What really matters to you? What are you trying to facilitate? What are your goals? People don't use that word, but what are they? And once you know those things about people, building a really personal relationship built around those things and doing what you can in terms of advice or coaching or accountability, leadership, whatever that individual or couple needs to just get rid of the, the problems that money might cause in their life and do more of the things that they want to do. And that was how I always personally felt about money mm. and financial decision making. And I got into financial planning and I got a bit of a rude shock, I guess, in some ways where it didn't really deliver any of those things that I was just referring to. So much it was built around product distribution and moving people between a super fund and another super fund and setting up insurance policies and maybe living off commissions and the like and not really problem solving, not really helping people get more of the things that genuinely matter to them, which I think is fundamentally the reason people seek advice. Yeah. Even if they don't know it, if you chunk down, they're the reasons, they're the motivations for them. So that was the driver initially behind, uh, behind leaving the banking institution and starting Versemates. We give our own version of advice, which we're proud to say is, is very personalized. It's goal oriented, it solves problems, it's purposeful, uh, it's meaningful, it's a lot of fun. You know, and we've removed all of those conflicts and some of the things that can just interfere with the quality of, of advice and the interests that are being served along the way as well. So that's, uh, that's a brief version, mate. Yeah. How long did you last in that kind of corporate, that institutional setting? I lasted about three years. Yeah. Having said that, I knew very, very quickly that I wasn't going to last there very long. And I spent the majority of the three years <laughs> planning my, uh, my exit. It wasn't so much that I was moving away from that environment, it's more that I was moving towards something that I genuinely felt passionate about and had conviction around building. I got, to, uh, I got to a bank initially in early 2011 and I was in a role supporting a financial advisor for 12 months. And in 2012, I moved into an advisory role where I was in a local branch, I was client facing, I was building client relationships and giving advice. And I was in that role for a couple of years. I think before I even got to that role, I knew I'd start a business and knew it would look somewhat different to uh, what I was being exposed to. So ultimately I was there for about three years, mate. Yeah. yeah. I think you've done pretty well to, to get to that point in such a short period of time. <laughs> I think a lot of people, well, um, I guess I'm reflecting on myself, it took mm. me a little bit longer mm. than that, quite mm. a bit longer than that to be able to make that move. What do you put that down to for yourself? Like is, maybe mm. it's, you could reflect on why I actually got into it in the first place, but yeah. yeah, why? It's a few things. I mean, the reason I got into it was because I thought that advice can have a big impact on people. and. I always wanted to live a life that was large and I could do all the things that I wanted to do and build it with lots of great experiences. And 
I knew that money was probably the only thing that was ever going to get in the way of me being able to live that life. So I become really money conscious. You know, I was a saver early and investing early in my teens and borrowing money to invest in these kind of things. So that was the motivation to get in, to make sure that more people could live that way and money didn't get in the way of doing those, those things. But in terms of why I so quickly got into the banking environment and so quickly out, I've always felt a real sense of inner clarity um, around my values. Not that I've always referred to them that way, but always felt really comfortable with who I am. Always sort of had a high level of self-awareness and a lot of conviction. And I think blend that with the fact that I'm quite idealistic by nature. I think when I when I got that initial role, there was a clear conflict of my own personal values, and it quickly became clear to me that I loved the concept of financial planning as I saw it and wanted to do that version for a long time, but I couldn't do it in the environment that I was in, so I had to change the environment. And I felt like if I'm going to do this for 20, 30 years, I'm going to make sure as hell that when I leave, there's more people getting the sort of advice that I think they should have access to. And I think when you feel that way about something, there's nothing left to do but Mm. to pursue it. So for me, it wasn't really a decision. It was more felt like I've had, I guess, this vision that has been pulling me along the way. And it's felt felt quite effortless, really, to be honest. Not that there hasn't been a lot of hard work, but there hasn't been a lot of crucial decisions I've felt like I've had to make along the way. I think intuitively they've just been made for me in some way. Yeah. Mm. I get that point where it's kind of like, well... I don't really have any other choice. There's not any other way I can go. Like the conviction is strong enough and I just have this sense of clarity or mm. maybe clarity what not to do, but I can't actually do that thing anymore. Yeah, so, exactly right. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you can so clearly see that there's a method or an environment that doesn't quite sit comfortably with you, I mean, you can suck that up and stay there, but that's just a path to disappointment and regret, I think and test mediocrity and all the things that I personally would like to avoid. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it didn't, never felt like I've got to a point where, okay, well, I need to make some decisions and I've had to really think through them broadly. I've always felt like I've had that sense of direction. Yeah. Mm. I want to dive into a bit about how you have set up the business and mm. the values and the kind of advice and the way you interact with people. But before mm. I do, I'm interested mm. in... Um, I guess your own relationship with money. It's interesting what you were saying there. I think I've had, for me and money, there's often a a guilt associated with it. There's there's a whole lot of kind of stories around money, but I'm interested in what role does it play in your life? Mm. It sounds like, Mm. maybe I won't put any words in your mouth, but what what role, how do you you think about money? How do you conceptualize it? And how do you, what is it to you in your life? It's a great question. I've always just viewed it as being a facilitator. I've, I've always wanted to have a lot of money, but never for the sake of having a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty obvious, mate, that most of the things that you want to do and experience in life, quite often you need money to experience those things. And without having the financial means, you're going to miss out on a lot of things in life. And that's unfortunately just one of the realities of the society that we live in. And I've always felt about money as just a means to an end. You know, I, I've got my own goals and I've got my own bucket list and myself and my fiance Christy do collectively and we just want to make sure that we've got enough resources to live how we want to live, to eat how we want to eat, to travel when we want to travel, to support the people that we want to support 
to live where we want to live. We've got our first child coming in a couple of months. So to provide for them the way that we want to provide, and that's fundamentally it. I think, I think in terms of the guilt you're referring to, people feel a whole range of emotions when it comes to money. It's yeah. pretty difficult to separate money and emotion, which is why great advice can't be found on a spreadsheet. You need to get to the heart of what people care about and what's holding them back. But mm. I think for me personally, I've always sought to try and separate the emotion from the money and look at things logically and rationally. And you know, that's a bit easier said than done at, at times, but I've always tried to separate the two. Yeah. Mm. It does make me reflect on my own feeling about money right now. And it's interesting, like I, I've had about 18 months off work and I've been living off my savings for that period of time. Yeah, okay. Which has caused quite a dramatic mind shift in me about what I really do want to spend my money on. And it, it helped me realize that I was spending my money on a whole lot of things that I didn't actually, they weren't actually adding anything to mm. my life. Mm. It was essentially wasting money. You know, just in, in not having income coming in, it made me much more aware mm. of how I spent my money. Mm. And so I've, you know, I've gone through a bit of a downshifting exercise in terms of my clothes, in terms of my where I live, the kind of house I live in. and mm. it, uh, but I have spent more money on things like quality food, yeah. you know, and yeah. probably well-being and looking after myself and in improving how I am physically and emotionally. So it's definitely changed over the past 18 months and it's been quite liberating mm. as well mm. in that. And I think right now what I, how I think about money is I want, I want, well, I want enough to... Yeah, provide, I've got two kids to provide for my family. Sure. To be well and to do fun stuff. Mm. Yeah, like to do fun stuff with business and then to turn that into other fun stuff as well. That's three pretty decent pillars as a starting point for some good decision making. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think as you're saying this, I start thinking about so many of our clients and for a lot of people, there is that misalignment between how they spend and what actually matters, what they're actually trying to achieve. You know, as you, were, as you were talking, a recent client that's come on board come to mind. And when I first met them, this is a husband and wife, they're mid to late 30s, got a young boy, and they're running a small business and things are pretty tight for them. And we had this conversation around all the stresses that they're feeling from a business point of view, from a household cash flow point of view, She's particularly stressed. He's a little more carefree. You know, she bears the burden of thinking about these things. And we were going through all their expenses and the husband bought a brand new Porsche a couple of years ago. He spent about 300,000 on it, took out a lease to, to buy the Porsche. And he's got car payments of about $35,000 a year going towards this Porsche that he, he barely drives because he's so buried in work at the moment. He doesn't have time to drive it or enjoy it. And the family's under tremendous stress and they're talking about goals being helping their young boy through private schooling in the future, her being able to start a business, him being able to slow down and spend more time with the family. He feels like he's missed out for a long time. And subsequent to that initial conversation, I, I brought their attention to the fact that there was a real misalignment between the way they're spending and what genuinely matters to them. And I, I asked them, I said, look, how much does the Porsche actually matter to you? When we, when we look at this comparatively to 
the concept of giving your boy the education that you really want and being able to spend more time with family and slow down and you know it's kind of a no contest two weeks later the Porsche has been sold yeah the loan's been paid out their cash flow is about $35,000 a year lighter and they feel like <laughs> the weight of the world has come off their shoulders yeah and that was nothing groundbreaking, but that was just helping them join the dots yeah. and just identify there's a bit of a misalignment there, heighten their awareness. And I think, as you're kind of alluding to, I think when your awareness goes up, your decision-making improves quite dramatically. So that's part of what we do, yeah. That's interesting. Um, do you find that a lot, that people have a misalignment with their values and the way they spend? And do you find yourself in that kind of role, helping them connect those dots? I wouldn't say it's everyone. Horses for courses. I do think generally there is a misalignment and I think quite often the misalignment also can, can come from just quite not understanding context, not being, able to, not being able to join the dots between the resources they've got and what they're trying to achieve. In this case, they'd misunderstood what they were trying to achieve and what was important, but I think even for the people that are a little clearer on what they actually want, whether they get into shares or property or start a business or invest here or there or put money in super or not in super. I think quite often that joining the dots between the decisions they make and what they're trying to achieve, a lot we're always doing that dot joining for people yeah. um, in terms of strategy and advice. So there's always elements of it for sure. Yeah. Mm. Did you expect that going into this? Or is that you know, just a byproduct? I, no, I did. I did. As you say that, before I got into financial planning, I. I put together a business plan for going and talking at high schools to teens about <laughs> basically financial literacy and making better decisions yeah. with money, but just fundamental stuff. And not framed around this is what a share is and this is how you do a budget. Naturally, you'd be talking about some of those things, but more so about giving context and making sure that people understand the implications of their decisions. You know, if you're 18 and you go out and take out a $30,000 personal loan to buy a a hold and ute at 16%, understand how that's going to set you back over the next five to 10 years. And I think, I think people don't understand the impact of their decisions. And for me, initially, even before I got into advice, this was a business concept that I had, and that was driven by helping people have more context when it comes to those decisions. Because I think when you have context and you've got clarity, it's quite empowering. It just naturally just creates some good filters for good decision-making. Yeah. And it's not just money, it's everything. You know, if you want to lose five kilos before Christmas, when you go to the food court for lunch with all your girlfriends in the afternoon, you've got better filters around what you should eat and what you shouldn't eat. Yeah. If they're all going to get a pizza and they say, hey, Sophie, let's get a pizza, you might think, well, actually, I want to lose five kilos before Christmas. Pizza will move me away from that goal. I might, I might get sushi or I might get, yeah. I might get a salad. So money is just one, one example of where those filters are valuable. Yeah, interesting about high school. Like that I think in one of the other podcasts that I had, someone suggested that, you know, that's the stuff kids need to learn. Mm. Like so many mistakes are made, yeah, straight after school, maybe getting a credit card and getting a really high interest rate on the credit card or taking out a personal loan like you're talking about there. Or, you know, even just about, I guess, I don't know, leases and maybe buying a house, just that really basic financial mm. literacy of how to save, you know, yeah. those kind of things, such important things, but kind of skipped completely in the, uh, in the high school curriculum. Yeah, it's, uh, I've had these conversations before. It, uh, it's a missing piece, isn't it? It's, it's left up to parents, but parents typically don't have the skills or the knowledge, or the appropriate knowledge to pass on. We quite often just pass on 
poor habits or their own experiences, which may or may not have been successful. Yeah. Um, but making good decisions with money and understanding the fundamentals, just crucial for navigating life well. Right? Are, if you yeah. can't make good financial decisions, life is just going to seem a little more burdensome than it should, I think. Yeah, mm. totally. Mm. So clients that you attract or the clients that come to you, they, yeah. I guess they may or may not, they may, I'm making an assumption, they come with a particular frame about financial advice and maybe they've, they've been burnt a little bit by some of those, you know, just being milked for commission <laughs> or, know. you know, long tail commission. It's interesting of choice of words there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how do you go about it to build, I guess, that, Trust and transparency with clients. Like, yeah. How does what you do differ? How do you, yeah? How do you go about it in a different way? In terms of building that trust and breaking down some of that skepticism that exists when it comes to yeah. financial planning and and financial advice from a few different angles. I mean, firstly, in terms of transparency, one of the best values is total transparency, which, in terms of that clarifying statement, means that we've got consistency in our beliefs, words, and our actions and there's no smoke and mirrors ever. Yeah. And I think financial services has for too long operated on smoke and mirrors. I think in terms of the infrastructure around our approach and licensing and pricing, we've removed all of the commissions and the conflicts and we're not aligned to financial products and the like. So that naturally does some of that work for us and breaking down the skepticism. Yeah. But it doesn't do all of it. You know, it, it comes down to the people too. People need to feel comfortable with you. They have to trust you. They have to trust the team. And that's an individual thing, but it's also a collective thing. Before we started the business, James and I invested a lot of time in A, building the right culture so people exhibit the right values consistently. That was the first thing that we did before anything. And prior to starting the business, we also invested hundreds of hours in building an advice process that was repeatable and scalable and it was designed to make sure that irrespective of who sits in client meetings with clients in year one or year 10, that there is a process that's followed and a journey the client's taken through that maximizes the probability that a trusting relationship's gonna be built. Yeah. And parts of that mean that in our initial meeting, we're not in advisory mode, we're not selling our service, we're not talking about fees or trying to add value, we just ask a lot of good questions. We listen really well. When we ask one good question, we try and follow up with another good question to get as much clarity as we need on the client and help them get clarity too, mind you. And we want them to leave that initial meeting just despite the fact that we haven't even spoke about how we can help. Just feeling like, geez, these people really understand us. They understand us maybe better than our best friend understands us. And they walk out of that first meeting feeling great about things. And when they come in for the second meeting, that's where we start to put more of our advisory hat on and, and you know, we'll step in and say, okay, well, you shared so much last time. If this is where you're at and this is what you're working towards and these are the things getting in the way, and this is what's really important here, these are the sort of things we think you need to be focused on. You do more of this or less of this or these are some of the strategies that we think we need to be looking at or the priorities if we're working together. And I don't feel that we've ever lost a client based on trust. Ever. And I, we've got trusting people. We really do. We've got people that are genuine, that genuinely care, that are professional. But we've built that process, which really does mean that, irrespective of how the advisor's feeling on the day, or the team's feeling, or the mood the clients come in, 
or the level of skepticism they've brought with them or maybe haven't brought with them, hopefully, that's broken down and they get to the point where they're open-minded and, and willing to hear what we've got to say. Yeah. You know, just listening to your process there, it's made me reflect that you're cutting to the core of people when you start talking about money. Mm. Like you, you know, people start to talk about their biggest fears, their biggest hopes. It can be, um, I, mean, I guess, you know, in a certain part of their life, not in their whole life, but in a certain part, people are quite vulnerable in mm. that situation with you. They're opening up in yeah. quite a vulnerable way. That uh, it's quite a responsibility, I suppose, for yourself in that situation too. Yeah, it is. I mean, you, we say this to clients too. You know, when they open up the way that they do and show the vulnerability that they show, we let them know that we find it humbling. You know, we really do, and we we make sure that they know that. Yeah. And we know that people don't have these money conversations all the time. People aren't out there talking with their friends about money. It's a pretty taboo topic, and there's so much emotion wrapped up in money. There's pride at stake. There's there's all kind of things at stake, and. When clients go through our process and they work with us at first, they really have to, they have to have that sense of vulnerability and lay those things on the table. And the more they open up to us, just the better we can be at helping them and resolving the problems that they've got if they're problems. And as I said earlier, you, know, you can't find great advice on a spreadsheet. You know, we, don't we don't have to go through that process with clients. We could just ask them how much money they've got to invest, what they earn, what's in their super, what date they want to retire and how much income they might need. But I think we'd be, um, I think we'd be missing opportunities to help them get as much out of life as possible yeah. if, we, if we took that approach. So, yeah, there is a real, real level of vulnerability to it, mate. And it's, it's a big responsibility. I was talking with Monique, one of our teammates who you met earlier, just the other day, about a client that came on board that had been having, as a couple, been having some problems just learning to save, and just laying a financial foundation for about a decade. They hadn't been able to build good habits, um, perpetually being held back, building credit card debt. And the prompt for them was the fact that they want to start a family. They've started trying for a family and before you know it, they're going to be pregnant and, and probably have a child to look after. And there's this real sense of urgency they feel about getting their stuff together financially so they can get rid of their credit card debt, start saving, work, work towards buying a first home. And, I mean, these advice needs are pretty simple. Mm. But I spoke to Monique about the fact that this is a real responsibility, Monique. You know, we've got these people that have got these unresolved problems for a decade and they want to start a family and they're charging us with the responsibility of helping resolve these problems <laughs> so that they can look after a child in a year or two. It's a big deal. So you know, I think it's part of the reason why we find it really enjoyable too. Yeah, mm. totally. Mm. And you ever see any trends generationally or um, perhaps just in terms of the, you know, the era that we're living in now compared to maybe you know, a few years ago, but is there a shift in the way people think about money or the issues that they're coming to you with about their finances? So are you noticing anything uh, emerging? Good question. I mean, in terms of consumer needs, I don't think so. Clients just want the things they want. They just want the things they want out of life. For some people, they want less stress. For some people, they want peace of mind. For some, they want their forever home. For some, they want a tennis court. You know, for some, they want to sell a business and leave a legacy. It's 
people are always going to want those kinds of things. So that's not shifting. In terms of how advice is delivered and how those client needs are met, that's evolving and improving. That's where the changes I see, yeah. see that are coming. Across the industry you're talking about? Yeah, across the industry. Technology is driving a lot of that. It's been driven by a technology, which is empowering consumers to get advice needs met at, at simpler costs, uh, at lower costs, I should say. It's been driven by a greater demand for transparency, and that's been driven, I think, unfortunately, by legislation. And we've got an industry that's being pushed forward and it's evolving on the back of quite a lot of red tape, which is designed to make sure advisors are acting in the best interests of the client and not milking them, I think was the word that you referred to earlier, and setting some some minimum benchmarks that advisors need to abide by to just protect consumers. And that's needed because a lot of consumers are financially not very literate and they don't know what they don't know and quite often financial products and advice is built with a lot of complexity, there's a lot of jargon, products are built in a way that people don't necessarily understand them so they just need to place their trust in people but you know, I think unfortunately for too long that's been misplaced on too many occasions, hence all the legislation that's being pushed through. So. There's a few things that are driving some, some changes, but I think thirdly, there's this underswell of advisors and primarily young financial advisors that are coming in with some of the idealistic views that I've been talking about that do want to deliver real value to people, that do really want to solve problems, that really want to exist as part of a real profession, not an industry, not a sales industry. And I think when you, you put all these things into a melting pot and give it some time, it's an industry that will evolve. It will evolve quite quickly, I think. If we fast forward 10 years, it will look substantially different. And I think there'll be a lot more consumers that won't carry that same level of skepticism. And we'll just be going to see advisors knowing that they're gonna be well looked after, they're getting professional advice, they're getting advice that's focused on the things that actually matter to them. That'll become the norm rather mm. than the exception. So yeah. that's, a, um, that's a time in which I, I very much look forward to. Yeah. Mm. One thing I've noticed amongst some of the perhaps younger people that I hang around with, the millennials so-called, is a bit of a shift away from owning assets mm. amongst other things, you know, a change. It seems to be, uh, you know, this is definitely not across the board and probably is just some of the circles that I mix in, so it's probably a bit of mm. confirmation bias, but there's a move away from, um, say, marriage and families mm. and owning a house and living in the suburbs and more of a move towards kind of the sharing economy and communal spaces and renting and being a bit of a digital nomad and that kind of thing. Have you noticed that? And if mm. so, if not, what implications does that have for people with their finances as well? I think societal norms are, are evolving in the way that you're speaking about. I certainly think when you're in pockets that are closer to the city, as I think you and I are, you see more of that and you're exposed yeah. to more of that. Throughout a client base, I'm not seeing a significant shift in that direction. There's an evolution naturally, but I mean, our client base is, is quite broad. We've got some clients that are in their mid-20s, late-20s that are more like the millennials that you're referring to, and then we've got clients that are in their 30s, 40s, 50s, even 60s. So, yeah. you know, we, it's not necessarily a reflection of our client base, but it's more a reflection of society. And I think our client base, as it evolves and the brand evolves, it will resonate with more of those types of people. In terms of how they think about their money, yeah, for sure. I think that that traditional path of going to school, getting a job, moving up through the corporate ladder, improving your salary over multiple decades, 
maybe getting some responsibility in a leadership role and buying a home, paying off the home over multiple decades again, and then getting on with the task of saving for retirement, getting some money into superannuation. And although, you know, in the meantime, raising a family, I think, I think those traditional norms are breaking down. I think in a good way. I think people are feeling more liberated. They're more open-minded and they're living less passively. I think people have got, particularly with the internet and the rise of knowledge and all the barriers to doing most things, particularly getting into business, being entrepreneurial, have come down. Mm. So I certainly think that, that we're seeing that shift and certainly certainly for those people, is changing the way they think about money. I know for myself, I am that type of person and I purposefully haven't bought a home, despite the fact that most young people have scored to buy a home and I haven't because I want as much flexibility as possible to build the business that I want to build, to go where I have to go, to invest the capital that I need to into the business and having a home and a big mortgage through my 20s um, certainly could, could make things more difficult for me. So I guess that comes back to clarity, right? Knowing what's most important and um, what you want to achieve and making sure that your decisions are congruent with that. Yeah, mm. that's really interesting to hear. I suppose default thinking is still to find a way to buy a house. Mm. That's probably, mm. in generalizing, a lot of Australians would have that as something they feel like they should do at some point in their life. Mm. Yeah, the sooner the better, I reckon. There's, oh, a, real so, there's yeah. a real social currency attached to being a homeowner in Australia. Yeah. It's not the same everywhere else, but it certainly is in Australia. I think almost if you get to 40 and you don't own a home in Australia, you're written off as a, as a societal reject almost. <laughs> I think that's going to shift to some degree. That's generational too, that takes time, but I think we're seeing a shift. We're seeing more young people rent vesting. That's yeah. where they're, they're renting in an area that they want to live that funds that will facilitates the sort of lifestyle that they want if they're social and want to be around good cafes and restaurants and close to the city and close to, the, to work so they can invest more time in their career. And, increase their earning capacity, which I think should be the primary objective of the majority of young people instead of buying a home. So, I mean, we're seeing all those sorts of things happening, mate. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, I am almost 40 and I don't own a house and I rent and I like, I like the flexibility that it gives me. I really enjoy that. I've been able to live in some interesting areas and it's pretty quick and easy to do so as well. Mm. But I guess it means that people need to think a little bit differently about how they well, they, they need to change their thinking. They probably need some advice about how they, um, well, how I invest my money, how I do ensure that, you know, down the track, I'm not leaving myself in a vulnerable position. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you, I think buying a home for a lot of people is, can be an intelligent decision because a lot of people struggle to save, save consistently, and it's for savings, having a mortgage. Yeah. It's forcing you to make financial progress, where if you don't have that obligation with the mortgage, I think for a lot of people, they just don't make that progress. That money that would have been going towards a mortgage is just going to things that maybe aren't necessarily adding value to their life. So you've got to always be making financial progress, always moving ahead and getting ahead. But there's variations on what that can look like and yeah. that should vary based on, on your situation. Is there, I've got a couple of questions as we start to think about wrapping up, but there's still, actually, there's a couple of others that I want to ask you. One's about like, this is a very general question, but I mean, maybe I can phrase it as in, what's the, the one thing you would just like to tell everyone, you know, in a, in a general sense, in terms of uh, becoming better in terms of managing their own finances? 
What's the one thing? Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's a couple, but what a simple yet yeah, yeah, great question. The one thing. Get advice. <laughs> yeah. It's easy for me to say, but I genuinely believe that. The, the one thing that I would try and resolve for people is probably the best way I can answer your question is I'd help them avoid the big mistakes. It can only take a couple of significant financial mistakes over the course of your working life to really hold you back. Progress doesn't typically come from all of the good decisions you make. It's what are the silly ones that you make that really hold you back. And yeah. whether that's you know, buying to investment properties through your 30s, but buying junk properties that give you no growth and not recognizing it until 20 years later and you can't undo that time. These are the sort of things that I think advice helps people avoid. And maybe that's the most valuable thing that we do, as simple as that sounds. Yeah. So how it actually looks, how, mm. often, how often do people generally come and get advice? Like is, it, is it like an annual thing generally or is it more or less frequent than that? Yeah, it depends, mate. So it depends on, for us, it depends on the complexity of the client situation. So the more they've got going on, the more often we need to meet with them, the more moving parts to their finances and the strategy that we've got. If their needs are very simple, and that's referring to those clients that just need some ongoing cash flow advice primarily, you know, we're meeting with them once a year. But there's ongoing contact throughout the year, but that's done in a scalable way. You know, we've got some clients that run some decent sized businesses, one that runs a law firm on Collins Street and they've got plenty going on. So we're meeting with them at least four times a year, you know, dealing with business accountants and all kinds of things at the same time. So yeah. it just varies based on what their needs are. There's no point meeting with them more than we need to because that becomes invaluable for them and us. But at the same time, you don't want to be underservicing and because that increases the probability that you won't get the right outcomes too. So yeah. just going to get that balance right, which isn't difficult. Yeah. Mm. You know, I, I'm studying my own business at the moment as well. And it's, it's interesting because we're all very part-time. And so those cultural elements, it's quite difficult to build them in, in a diverse team as well, when we're not actually all fully focused on it. So, I mean, I'd be interested to hear about how two years ago, how you went about that and why, yeah, how you went about building that as a starting point. Mm. Well, it, it was the first thing that we did, this is James and I. So about six months before we started, we, I've been thinking about these things personally for a long time. I've always been fascinated by leadership. I've always been fascinated by culture. I've always been a big sports nut. And it's always been clear to me that the great teams are the ones that have great cultures, you know, the ones that actually sustain it over an extended period of time. It always comes back to culture and it always comes back to leadership, always. Yeah. And we want to build a big business, not for the sake of being big, but we want to have a big impact. So we kind of need to be big. And to build that and be as successful as I want us to be, I know that we have to have an incredible culture. We just have to. And I think to have a great culture, you need to have a framework you need to be able to codify it some way so that the set of values become the set of house rules for everyone. And they just guide how people think, they guide how they interact with each other, with clients, with business partners, how I've interacted with you today. They hold people accountable, they're committable, and they're also aspirational as well. You know, they, they set a benchmark that you want to aspire to at the same time without them being unattainable. And I think that when you get culture right, 
in a sporting team or in a business, everything else just starts to fall into place. Like if you've got a great culture that creates the conditions where people get the best out of themselves, they're inspired, they're motivated, they want to do their best work, they're passionate, they come up with ideas, they'll take risks, they'll challenge the things they don't agree with, but in a respectful and productive way, they want to grow and learn and improve. When you have an environment where all of those things happen, you can't but help build something great. You can't help but deliver real value to people. So that has, that has always been our focus. And we said before we started that culture would always be our number one priority. You know, you've always got financial constraints and realities and opportunities that you could take or milking that you could possibly do as you were referring to earlier. But we don't want to compromise on what we stand for and what we believe and that's our values. And what we have created in a really short period of time is an environment that I'm super proud of. James is super proud of. We've got an environment that for the couple of teammates that we've brought on board, I think it's changed their life. They're thinking in a different paradigm. They're chasing goals and have a sense of ambition that they didn't otherwise have. And we, we put motivated people in and inspired them is probably the best way to describe it. And the values that we've got um, are filtering through as they should into the client experience, into how we market and how we brand. They're just, they're just embedded through everything. Like they are everything. Mm. And um, I think when we think long-term about financial advice changing and the need for our business to evolve into the future, our one competitive advantage, and I think the only sustainable competitive advantage you can have in business is, is culture an environment that creates the conditions where you just get the best out of people. And uh, that's why we had such a focus on it. And that's why we, we initially had seven values before we, before we started. And at our first annual verse retreat, we reviewed the values and we left with eight. And we just had our second annual verse retreat and we left with eight again. <laughs> um, so our values are pretty solid, but they have just become that framework. And it means that as a leader, when you're giving feedback to people and you're helping people improve, nothing's ever personal. It depersonalizes feedback, which I think is also, also really important. Yeah. How have you gone about codifying those things or maybe not? How have you gone about ensuring that everybody embodies those, those values and that culture? It happens in a number of ways. It's a daily task. As one of the leaders, you need to set the standard and you need to personally be accountable to delivering and living the values all the time. If you don't do that, you can't hold others accountable. It's embedded through the way our meetings are conducted. It really is. It's embedded through the meetings that we have collectively as a team. It's embedded through the recruitment process. Like our, our first interview with candidates is a cultural interview. And every single question is a question that's designed to help us understand how well they might resonate with a particular value or not. We don't tell them that when they walk in, but we're even thinking about it at that point. Yeah. We're just trying to find the people that have the highest level of resonance with what we're trying to build and are most likely in the culture that we're building. All of the performance reviews with teammates, we call them teammates, not staff, they're all built around the values how well they're being lived, how well they're not being lived, where the areas of improvement are, recognition, rewards, termination, like everything's values based. Um, so yeah, it's a, a pretty strong sense of alignment and it, uh, it's just it's something that 
perpetually you're always doing you need to embed it into as many things as you can and the more that you're immersed into your daily activities and your daily thinking the more effective the culture becomes too and what is there rituals and artifacts that you have that enable you i mean that are your cultural rituals and artifacts <laughs> there are some um We've got a culture library. So one of our values is pursue growth and learning. Yeah. So we've got a library which is full of all the books that have helped change our lives basically um, and improve our level of thinking and help us build the business and build the culture. We've got a wow file on every client, which I think many advisors have. This is where one of our values is to live remarkable and we want to wow clients in ways that they would never imagine, you know, surprise and delight them. And you know, every time we have a client meeting, if they say something in that client meeting that potentially could be ammo for us to surprise or delight them in the future or wow them, when we walk out of that meeting, that gets put into the wow file. It's on our CRM. So an example is that we had some clients recently that bought their first home and they had said in a previous meeting, they're both foodies, that they'd never done a degustation. And they were both a laugh and saying, I'd love to do a degustation, that'd be brilliant. And we just made a mental note, we put it in the wow file, they bought their first home six months later. One of our values is celebrate success, so we always celebrate the achievements. So we went back to the wow file and saw that, hang on, they told us that they really want to do a degustation, they've never done one, so we bought them their first degustation. And <laughs> we, had a, we had a client just a fortnight ago who turned 60 and she had told us in a previous meeting that she really wanted to go hot air ballooning. She was super nervous about it, but it was on her bucket list, something that she really wants to do. Again, that went into the wow file and she turned 60. We said, well, it's a big birthday. We really got to celebrate this one. And what can we do that's really personable and, and might surprise and delight the client? And we bought her some hot air balloon tickets. And, uh, you know, they're, they're the kind of things, even simple things like start with why is one of our values. A big advocate of Simon Sinek's work, who I'd imagine you're probably familiar with. Yeah. And we order his book by the box load. Yeah. We give out one every second week to business partners or clients that are going to resonate um, or other people in our life. There's, there's all kinds of things. It's, it really is littered through everything. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun, mate. It, <laughs> it, it really has created an incredible environment that as you start adding more people to it, Quite often with culture, when you add more people, it detracts from the culture. Mm. With ours, we find that when we add more people, it just enhances the culture. Yeah. Which is pretty exciting when we think about what the future looks like. Yeah, it is. Mm. It sounds like you've got a pretty interesting relationship with your clients as well. Like, what, what are you noticing about them? What sort of feedback are they giving you? Like, what? Yeah. What are your clients? What's their experience like from your, from your perception? I normally don't want to talk for our clients, but I'm going to. I think our clients love us. Yeah. They love the experience. They love how close the relationship is. They love the fact that we're always thinking creatively about how we can just bring more value to their life. Because people typically don't do these things for other people, not as much as they should. I probably do more of this stuff for my clients than I do for my fiance, Christy, which, um, <laughs> which is maybe something I need to work more on. But they're really appreciative. I think we've earned a lot of trust with everyone that we work with. And I think by having this great culture and delivering this experience that is built around surprising and delighting people and celebrating, remarkable is a word we talk about a lot. And I think if 
We want the vast majority of people to get financial advice so they can get more out of their life. We need more people talking about financial advice, but we're really mindful that people don't talk about money and they don't talk about salary sacrifice arrangements and they don't talk about investment returns. But they do talk about experiences and stories and the things that surprise them, the unexpected stuff. Yeah, they do. That's the stuff people talk about. That's the stuff they, rem- they remark about. So we're mindful that if we want to we want to disrupt advice and change the narrative. We can't just do it just through the advice because the advice itself isn't that shareable. Yeah. It's all the other elements that go into the experience that you take people through. Yeah. Mm. I mean, we were talking a little bit about marketing earlier. And, I, I, you know, marketing, I, I think I was touching on that marketing isn't one of my strengths. And I, over the course of my life, I think I've had a little bit of cynicism and scepticism about yeah, okay. marketing. And I guess... Maybe you've come up against this challenge as well, coupling marketing and financial services together. Mm. Could be quite a challenge to come up, to do that in a genuine, authentic, aligned, mm. transparent way. Like how, how have you gone about your marketing? I don't think you're the only one that feels skepticism because people feel like they're getting sold to all the time. Um, and I don't think that financial services has traditionally done a very good job of marketing. It has seemed like it's more spin and sales orientated. The great Steve Jobs once said that marketing is about your values, and it really is. Like great marketing is about your values. It's about telling people what you believe and why you do the things that you do, and being able to create resonance with people, connect with people emotively. And people make, people make emotive decisions. You know, we're emotional creatures. Um, we really are. And if you think that you're not, you just don't know yourself well enough. And I think if you want to market well, you need to be able to connect with people emotively. And this is one of the challenges when it comes to financial advice, which is what you're referring to, because advice in a traditional sense is an emotive. However, the narrative for financial advice needs to change, and that narrative needs to be more based less around the what's and the features and the benefits, and more around the people and the outcomes and their lives and the stories and the problems that were solved and the things that they did in their life as a result of getting great advice. So all of our marketing is based around this narrative and it's not spin because it's authentic. This is actually how we think. We believe this stuff. So I think people sense the authenticity and it's been, we've done a good task I think of creating a tribe Building a real emotional connection to clients, to some consumers, to this nurture network, as we call it, that we're trying to build online, particularly through social media. And we've just done a lot. We scarcely do we write blogs on what impact is Trump going to have on the US economy, or what's the cheapest superannuation fund, or the six reasons why you should start a self financial fund. We know all that stuff, but it's not how we market. You know, we share client stories. We started this campaign earlier in the year called MyVerse, which was inspired by Humans of New York, if you're familiar with Humans of New York. I am. Yeah. So I first got familiar with Brandon Stanton's work and saw some of these posts and, and immediately thought, this is, this is storytelling in a, in a really powerful way, a really authentic way. And this is the sort of storytelling that financial advice needs. And given the level of trust that we've got and the depth that we go to, we can pull this off. So yeah. we started putting together these what we call MyVerse posts, which are 
short 200, 250 word stories in the words of the client verbatim. So there's a recorded conversation and then from that recorded conversation, their stories put together and it can take any slant. It could be on something they've achieved, something they're working towards, hardship that they've been through, something they're passionate about. And then that's blended with photos that they provide, they choose, that are complementary to the story that's been put together. And they've been going out on Facebook for a while and the level of engagement is really high. You know, people, people resonate with stories, people connect to stories. People, I think, want to feel things and that's how they make their decisions. Yeah. Um, and I think if you want to get good at marketing, um, and we're learning, we haven't perfected this, mind you, we've got a long way to go, but I think from a philosophical point of view, I think we're thinking along the right kind of lines. Yeah. Mm. I, yeah, I, I, what you're talking about there, you know, it's just obvious that you're building for the long term <laughs> as well <laughs> with those things. So It's a long game. Yeah. Like it's, it, We've taken no shortcuts, not with anything. Marketing is just one example. Everything's long game. You know, I, I just know that if you do the right things well consistently over a long period of time, the outcomes, the right outcomes for clients, for the business, for your own financial life, they're just a consequence of doing those things well consistently over a long period. So yeah, it's all been long game. Our marketing's long game. We're not throwing videos onto Facebook saying, here's our number, give us a call. We're doing a 50% discount in August, and we're, we're trying to build a network of people that think that at the right time for them, we might be a good fit. Yeah. And we will work over time to build a relationship to maybe educate them, add a bit of value. And at the right time, if it's a, we ran a workshop, a couple of workshops recently called Fight Night, which we sold out. They got some of these people that had been following online into the, into the workshop and they had a good night and they've then become clients. So it's a, it's a long process, but I think uh, I think marketing these days is less about just interrupting people with a television ad and selling them something, and more about connecting with them in a way that adds value to them over an extended period of time. And when it's the right thing for the consumer, they'll they'll buy from you. <laughs> Seth Godin's had a pretty big impact on our thinking around marketing, mission marketing, he calls it. Yeah. Um, so he's been he's been an incredible resource. So if you in your business or wanting to improve uh, improve how you guys market, Seth Godin, some of his books are a great place to start. That's where I'd recommend starting. Yeah. I've enjoyed listening. I've, I've heard his interview with Tim Ferriss and I have, I've listened to his startup school as well. I enjoy what he's got to say. I enjoy his relationship with books as well. Um, as a little side. I've got this new heuristic. I have these heuristics that I come up with from time to time in my own mind. <laughs> and my recent one is, if something's advertised on TV, that's a pretty good indication that I should never buy it. <laughs> it's just a blanket rule that you've got. <laughs> it's just a, it's a rule of thumb. Sure. You know, I'm sure there's exceptions yeah. to that, but that's, um, I think, for where I am in life right now, that's, uh, I reckon there's that. I'm pretty safe with that one. Yeah, on a, on a whole, I think that would serve you quite well. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, so yeah, a couple of questions as I ask all my guests. The first one's about, so this podcast is called Subtle Disruptors, it's about the under the radar things that mm. people are doing. You're doing that through finance and financial advice at the moment. Is this something that you, an idea that you play with in the back of your mind or an area that you think, 
gosh, I'd love to see that disrupted one day. I'd love to be part of that or just see somebody else really take that by the horns and, and do something cool with that. That's right for some subtle disruption. Is there anything that comes to mind? In the industry other than my own? Correct. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Well, thinking about financial services, most of it. So I think that real estate is ripe for disruption. Yeah. I think the barrier to entry and the level of professionalism in with real estate agents is pretty low. I think they, uh, they make plenty of coin relative to the sort of value they deliver to consumers. So I think that's an industry that's crying out for disruption and crying out for transparency. It's going to come. It's going to come in the form of technology very quickly. So that's one. But I think even just more generally, I think about accountants, I think about lawyers, I think about professionals generally. I think professional services needs to be disrupted. It needs to, it needs to get rid of the professional mask. It needs to be more human, it needs to be more relatable. It needs to be simplified. It's more transparency, it needs to solve more problems for people. Maybe even people have more fun too along the way. Uh, there's a couple of industries that I think should be disrupted and hopefully the future part of those disruptions too. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. Should we acknowledge the fact that we've got a helicopter up ahead <laughs> right now? We should. I think there was one earlier as well. There is yeah, a, couple well. Of, a couple of helipads in this part of the city. I haven't been fortunate enough to take off from one of those helipads myself. Have you ever been up in one? No, I haven't, mate. I, uh, maybe I'll pop that on my bucket list. <laughs> Chop a ride. Are you investing in other businesses at the moment or are there other things that you are you just sort of completely focused on Burst? I'm all in at yeah. Burst at the moment. Um, you know, we're still in the infancy, really. We're not quite two years old, so I'm not at that point where I'm starting to capital into other businesses but in the future that's something that I certainly would love to do but at the moment I don't have that capacity personally yeah the time okay. the time the capital yeah and with a, a young one on the way as well it's going to be in itself a new project <laughs> yeah there's it's going to be a big 2017 where we're due 20th of Feb Christy and I she, uh, she actually she's a primary school teacher it's her last day teaching today oh, wow. so yeah. she won't listen today but she'll listen at some point so shout out to you honey <laughs> yeah. but uh, uh, it's going to be a big year next year from a family point of view and from a business point of view so you can't have too many priorities I, I heard once that if you've got too many priorities you've got no priorities so I just need to stick to just a few for the time being yeah it's a good call the last question is back about you actually and about yeah. A small change or a subtle thing that you've done in your own life or that you, you do on an ongoing basis that's had an important important impact or a big impact in uh, the way you do things and who you are or that's um, you've been an important change in your life that would be interesting for other people to hear about as well. I really tried to become a better listener. It's a simple one, I know, but I never valued listening like... I do now. I, I think when I got into financial planning, and I think this concept of thinking about how do you deliver more value to people, if you can't be a great listener, that gets really, really difficult. And as I have, I mean, I've read a lot of books around communication and the like, and there's some simple ones out there like Copy Seven Habits and uh, Dale Carnegie's book and the like, but just becoming more of an active listener, like genuinely being open-minded and listening to what people have to say and not thinking about your response while people are talking and asking great questions. You know, using what they say, not as a chance to credibility or tell them what you think and share your own opinion, but to ask another question. 
And I think that the world would be a much, much better place and relationships would be a lot deeper and more fulfilling, not just in work, but more so with the people that you love and that you care about if you work on becoming a better listener. So for me, that's an ongoing pursuit, but certainly something that's adding value to my life for sure. Yeah, that's a great one. I was at a um, conference called Percolate. No, Jason Fox at all, but he's. I've actually seen Jason speak at yeah, a conference yeah. a couple of years ago. He's yeah. an interesting character. Isn't he? Yeah, he's brilliant. He's brilliant great. Mind. I mean, one of the people, there was two people that actually talked about. Oh no, one guy that talked about listening. I think it's actually the area that he that he specialises in. And two things stuck with me that he mentioned about listening. One was that people can talk at about 150 words a minute. That our brains can think at about 600 words a minute and that gap of 450 words is all the you know the, the extra time that we can use to think about what we are going to say or so that was just an interesting thing that he yeah an interesting observation that helped me think about my own listening as well and then the other thing he mentioned was that our listening is directly proportional to how deeply we're breathing so when we breathe deeply when we're in conversation with someone, we listen more deeply. Mm. But if we breathe more shallowly, our listening is more more shallow. Why, well. why is it so? Is it just an act of how present you are and your breathing is I think so. quite yeah. often a good, a good barometer for your, yeah. your level of presence? Yeah. And I, I mean, this was, I've only been at this, this conference was only sort of about two weeks ago. So I haven't put this into practice that much. And um, But the times I have, I've, when I do notice my breath and I notice that I do listen better, but um, I guess back to yourself, like, do you have ways that help you become a better listener or be a better listener? What do you employ to help you do that? I think just being conscious of it, making sure it's front of mind. I think intuitively we know that listening is really important. We know a lot of things intuitively are really important. It's, it's in our subconscious, but I think making these things more conscious thoughts rather than subconscious thoughts yeah. and just being more active in your conversations, yeah. checking yourself up when you recognise that, look, I've drifted off topic. I'm not actually listening to what Adam's saying anymore. I've been listening all the way, mind you, Adam. <laughs> We're on a podcast and you're asking me questions. But just being more accountable to yourself as you're having conversations with people is pretty simple. But for me, that's, that's how I've gone about it. Yeah. Hmm. Well, it has been good listening to you and thank you for listening to me as well. Thanks for being on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Adam. I, I genuinely appreciate it, mate. You've been a great listener. <laughs> thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I have a few questions for you. What is your why when it comes to finances? What do you want this tool to enable for you? And what changes could you make to create this reality? If you feel like sharing your thoughts on this or anything else about my conversation with Corey, you can do so by posting something on Facebook, through Twitter or Instagram, or even by sending me an email to adam at subtledisruptors.com. And of course, let me know if there are subtle disruptors you think I should know about. Coming up next week, I'll be talking to Dr. Bronwyn King about disrupting the unconscious support of big tobacco most of us are party to. I'm Adam Murray, and I hope you feel a little more encouraged, connected, and resolute in your own quest of subtle disruption. Bye for now.